Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. A question for you this morning. How many of you have ever had a conversation with someone where, uh, where they were really letting you know that you were letting them down? Any of you ever had a conversation like that? Those conversations are uncomfortable. Um, I try to avoid them as much as I can. Having them with people and having people have to have them with me. Uh, the first year I was coaching middle school basketball over at Cal Weeman, um, there was a situation. Uh, we were playing a game out at Mount Solo, and, and I had a kid on the team. Uh, these are seventh graders at the time, mind you. I had a kid on the team who... Uh, who had a, a ball passed to him, and he fumbled the ball and, and lost it out of bounds. Um, after he fumbled the ball, he kind of gave up on the play, and then the ball went out of bounds. Anyhow, I, I snapped at him, you know. I, I uh, yelled at him I uh, just briefly, but I, I definitely snapped at him. And, uh, and I didn't know it at the time, but my, my boss, the athletic director at Cal Weeman, who was there then, uh, was sitting in the stands near enough to hear everything I, I said, you know, and it was some, you know, simple like, Connor, I can't believe you didn't catch that, you know, or something. Anyhow, uh, he wanted to have a conversation with me after the game. Uh, I, me- I remember he said to me, all I could see was a kid who was trying his best, struggling through it, and uh, and I don't think anything that you said really helped him. And, of course, uh, I, I felt a few things when he confronted me on it. I felt, I mean, a little ashamed because, you know, he was, he was kind of right. Um, but along with feeling a little ashamed, I also felt uh, misunderstood and a, and a little bit judged because here, I, that's just one little snapshot. That moment in the game, me yelling in the game is just one tiny snapshot of my relationship with this player. You know, we practice together every day. We've coached him in plenty of other games. I've had lots and lots of positive interactions with this particular kid, and yet I felt like my performance as a coach was being judged by my boss based on just one small snapshot of it. And I felt like I could, I could point to a host of other moments where I put a smile on his face, where we've laughed together, where I've encouraged him. Uh, and, and sure, here in this one moment, I've let him down, but can we just ignore my less fine moments in favor of the ones that are better. This was really hard for me because uh, I tell myself a story when I'm coaching. Actually, I tell myself a story all throughout my life that I'm a good guy. James Dieter's a pretty good guy. Uh, I'm a a good coach. I'm a nurturing coach. I'm an encouraging coach. I'm not a mean coach. I'm not a yeller. I'm a player's coach for sure. These are things that I tell myself all the time. And then sometimes other people tell me that story too. Wow, James, you're a really nice guy. Man, you're a really nice coach. Maybe a little too nice sometimes. Um, But I see myself a certain way, and I tell myself a story about myself. And then when someone confronts me with uh, a narrative that's outside of the story that I'm always telling myself, that that was really a struggle for me. 
We've been talking for the last couple of weeks uh, in the book of John, John chapter 8, we've been talking a lot about who Jesus is. And this shift happens in the middle of the chapter in, in verse 31. You could start turning your Bibles there if you want to read along before we get into it. But this shift happens where instead of the crowds trying to determine who Jesus is or what Jesus' identity is, he begins to talk to them about who they are and the stories that they've been telling themselves about who they are. And he's confronting them. And it's a little uncomfortable for them as well. Uh, as we jump into John chapter 8, 31, uh, of course, it's really helpful to remember that back in the day when Jesus lived, people lived a little differently than they do now. Uh, extended families tended to live in large housing compounds together. It was super rare to ever leave the village where your family raised you and to go into something else, it was super rare to ever marry outside of the family network of, of relationships and neighbors and people that were around. Uh, sons tended to be known by their father's name. Children tended to grow up and do whatever kind of trade their parents had done. Uh, once family heritage was central to their identity, how they saw themselves, who they were, uh, and I raise this point because for many of us living today, we just don't think of ourselves and our identity tied so closely to our, our family or our legacy or our extended family or, or our ancestors. I mean, I couldn't even tell you the names of all of my great-grandparents. I don't, I don't know their first names. Um, I know one of them. That's it. Darn it. Um, so it's just, it's different now. We tend to think a little more individualistically. I'm sure for some of you, you would feel that the only uh, identity characteristic that you share with maybe your family or your parents is, is the last name. Uh, maybe others of you are tied a little bit more into that fabric when it comes to thinking about yourselves. Uh, but I think today it, it can at least be assumed we all think a little more individualistically when we think about our identity. Uh, we probably think a lot more vocationally too. We think about what we do for work as part of who we are. Uh, but in Jesus' day, these things weren't necessarily. So this idea of heritage and ancestry, uh, it was really, really central to how somebody thought about themselves. And we'll see that come to the forefront in John chapter 8. Um, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you uh, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you that you are the creator of the universe from which every family on earth derives its name. Uh, we thank you that you are a good father, um, and we thank you that you have welcomed us into your family. We ask your Holy Spirit would uh, just enlighten our minds with your words of truth today, and that each of us would be uh, not just challenged, but we would be changed by hearing your word. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 8, verse 31, we read, To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, then you're really my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Who are the people who get to really be Jesus' disciples? The people who hold to his teachings. What are they going to know if they hold to his teachings? They're going to know the truth. And what does the truth do? It sets them free. That's a three-point sermon. That sounds pretty good, right? That's good news. We're Americans. We love freedom. I love the sound of that. But the people who believed in Jesus, the people who heard him saying this in this moment, they read between the lines of what Jesus is saying just a little bit, 
And they're not so sure that this is good news. Because if someone is to be set free, or if someone is declared, if you do this, you'll be set free, that assumes that they're in a different state before they've been set free. And so the people key into that, that, they're, that Jesus is somehow saying that they're not free in this moment. And they answer Jesus in verse 33, and they say, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we're going to be set free? Maybe at times you've experienced this. You feel like you're giving somebody good news, and then they come back at you like it's not good news, and you're thinking to yourself, wow, that didn't go like I expected at all. Here Jesus says this to the people, you'll be set free. They come back, and they are offended. Jesus has said something about them. He said to them, you're not free. And the way that they view themselves doesn't line up with what Jesus is saying about them. Of course, the way they view themselves is, at least in this moment, conveniently ignoring a few things. They're Abraham's children, right? They're Abraham's descendants. Yes, they say we've never been slaves to anyone. And Abraham is this great patriarch, this shepherd who was blessed by God, many flocks, many servants, many children, uh, and many grandchildren. Uh, And yet, Abraham's great-grandchildren all went up to Egypt as a handful of people, about 70 people, and they ended up living there for 400 years as slaves. And then after God set them free, his children settled in Canaan, and under the time of the judges and the kings, they had plenty of years and decades when they were under the rule of the people around them. Then the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires took the children of Abraham. They took them away from their homeland into captivity. And so if we're speaking historically about the children of Abraham, where are, where do they even get off telling themselves that they've never been slaves to anyone? Because that's simply not true. They're forgetting their history, but they're also forgetting and ignoring the obvious facts of today. If you were walking around Jerusalem in 30 AD, around the time Jesus was teaching, you would look around and you would see everywhere Roman soldiers. You would see everywhere Roman coinage. You would see everywhere Roman architecture. And these are all symbols of the Roman Empire that is ruling over these people. It's conquered them and subjugated them, and they are ruling over them with an iron fist. And yet, in the midst of this history of slavery and this present-day slavery, what do the people say to Jesus? We're Abraham's children. We've never been slaves to anyone. There's no one better than us. We're so free. How can they say this? How can they say that? I think what we are witnessing in this story is a high degree of self-deception happening right here. There's a detachment for the people of God, the Jews. There's a detachment from the fullness of their reality. And before we get too critical of our friends here in the story in John chapter 8, let's be careful. Because self-deception is something that we all engage in, and it is really tough to self-diagnose. Usually we don't remember it. And so my boss is saying to me, man, that was a pretty heartless, cold coaching moment, and you really let that kid down. And I'm telling myself, what are you talking about? I'm a good guy. I'm a nice guy. I'm a good coach. This kid loves me. 
I walk around a lot. That's another story I tell myself. Everyone loves me. I don't know why they wouldn't. I'm so great. I'm an encourager. I don't make people feel bad about themselves. This isn't what I do. Self-deception runs pretty rampant in our lives if we can really be honest with ourselves. And I think often we'll notice it. If anyone treads just a little bit too close to your self-deception, if they step on the stories, uh, the half-truths that you tell yourself, just a little bit, our emotions get fired up right away. Do you ever find yourself being defensive? You know why you get defensive so fast? It's because somebody's trampling your self-deception just a little bit which means that there's some truth in their perspective. They might not be right about everything. And, and, you know, my boss, he didn't fire me, so he knew I was a good coach. But there's some truth in there. I'd let, I'd let that kid down. I'd let my competitive nature get the best of me. I'd let my frustration get the best of me. Jesus replies to the people who are saying, we've never been slaves to anyone. What are you talking about? He says to them, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who misses the mark, everyone who doesn't get it right 100% of the time is a slave to sin. Jesus says, very truly I'm telling you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. One of the things I love about the way Jesus says this is he doesn't say everyone who sins is a terrible, worthless sinner. He's not making a statement about the value or the nature of people who sin. Rather, he's talking about the state or the status that sin puts them in. Those who sin are enslaved. Those who sin are trapped by sin. They're under the power of sin. The Bible teaches about humanity's nature, our natural state. The thing that is most true about us is that we have been made in the image of God. And we're destined to rule over creation in relationship with God. The deepest truth of every person living on the planet, every person who's ever lived, is that that they are a child of God created to rule and reign with Him and loved by Him. Loved by Him so much that God is willing to lay down His Son for them. That's true. But then there's this other thing that's true too. And these are, these are situations that make us uncomfortable when two things are true, but they don't seem to line up with each other. We get, we, get, we, get, uh, we get ourselves in trouble in these situations, or we wrestle with these situations. Everyone's loved by God, and it's also true what Jesus just said. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Sin has power over them. So that rather than ruling with God as we are created to for those who sin, they end up with sin ruling over them. I think this can be a really helpful way to think about these things and especially what it means for humanity to sin because we're able to do two things at the same time if we hold that these two things are true. One, we're able to have we're able to preserve a high view of humanity. This miracle that God chose to do and the culmination of his creation to make us in his image, to be his image bearers here on earth. We can preserve that high view. We can preserve the dignity that humanity is meant to have, that every human being deserves being made in the image of God. We can preserve all of that at the same time we don't have to be in denial about sin's impact in the world, 
about sin's impact in humanity and about sin's impact in us individually. I could ask the question, say, go ahead, raise your hand. Who here is without sin? Nobody's going to raise their hand for that. I could say, who here is not a slave then? If, you, if you're not without sin, are you not a slave? No one would raise their hand to that either. We ask it, I don't even ask it in the negative, right? Because that's a little safe. No one had to raise their hand. According to Jesus' words and what he just said, though, who here is a slave to sin? That means everybody has to raise their hand, right? I don't want to. This is the part of me I don't like to admit to, right? This is uncomfortable. This is not fun. This is not the story I tell myself, right? I'm a good person. I'm a decent, I'm a pastor for crying out loud. I don't like this. I'm going to put my hand down. My face is turning red. gets worse before it gets better. Jesus continues in verse 35. He says, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. Ouch. Jesus, you're saying to the people, they're slaves. Granted, don't think about like 19th century American slavery. Think about first century Roman slavery. It's a little different. Uh, just think about your credit card debt. That's what it is now. <laughs> um, anyhow, he says the slaves, they don't even have a permanent place in the family. They're not a part of that family heritage. Their identity isn't tied to the family name, the ancestry. They're sort of imposters in the family. He says those of you who are slaves don't even have a place in the family. But then he says, but if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. And here's the powerful element of the gospel being thrown into this situation. You have human beings who are slaves to sin, and slaves don't have a permanent place in the family. They're not a part of it. And yet, thank goodness, there's this son who has come along in the fullness of his belonging in the family, and he's made it his job to lift humanity up into that sonship and daughtership, into being a part of the family. This son who belongs, let there be no doubt about it, belongs to the father. He and the father are one. He comes to us and he welcomes us as brothers and sisters into the family. We who were slaves. Jesus continues, he says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants. And yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. Verse 38, I'm telling you what I have seen in the father's presence. And you're doing what you have heard from your father. This concern is brought up a few times in John's chapter 8. Jesus is concerned that the people are looking for a way to kill him. Some of that's because Jesus can see beyond the accolades and the, and the well-wishers and the crowds. He can see that behind the scenes, pieces are moving. People are scheming. Things are happening, and his death is going to be imminent. These people are searching for a way to kill him. So what is Jesus saying to them? What is Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is proclaiming the truth of heaven, right? He's there healing the sick. He's giving sight to the blind. He's raising the dead. He's proclaiming freedom to the captives. Well, whose child is he? What family heritage is he playing part in? The creator of the universe, the Father God. He's in the image of God, and he's living out that heritage of being in the image of God. He's living out what it means to be a son of God the Father here on earth. And he's showing whose father, who, whose child he really is. He's all about his father's business. 
So what about these people who are looking for an opportunity to murder somebody? Whose children would be looking for a way to kill God's anointed one? Whose spiritual heritage are they participating in? Whose work is this? You know, Jesus, we believe he's the Messiah. He's the son of Eve that was promised in Genesis chapter 3. The one who was going to undo everything that the serpent had done. And even this conflict, this epic battle between the son of Eve, the child of Eve, and the serpent's offspring is foreshadowed in Genesis chapter 3. So whose offspring would it be who's in conflict with this anointed one? Whose offspring would it be who is trying to kill this one? I'll give you a hint. Add a D to the beginning of the word evil, and you'll have it spelled out. Danny's back there like, devil? I don't get it. No, it's devil, Danny. It's devil. Um, Jesus says, I'm doing what I've heard from my father. You're doing what you have heard from your father. They're starting to put it together. They reply to Jesus, Abraham is our father. Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me. A man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did no such thing. You are doing the works of your own father. Notice in Jesus' mind, you can be Abraham's descendants. You can be the natural born children of Abraham, but you cannot be his true children. You cannot be heirs to what it was, the legacy that Abraham left. So there's a difference between just being a biological child and being a part of that inheritance, being a part of that legacy. For the Jewish people living here today, it's almost like Jesus is putting the question out to them. Which family legacy are you going to live out? Whose father's business are you going to be about? Because when you go to work for whichever, whichever dad it is, you're showing which family you belong to. You're showing which legacy you're going to carry on in your day, in your time. Are you going to be the one who's writing the legacy of the Creator, who's made you in His image, invites you to rule and reign with Him? Or are you going to continue the story of rebellion and murder and death? Are you going to write the story of reconciliation with your life, be about that father's business, or are you going to be about the other father's business? They reply to Jesus, We are not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God Himself. You can see they're getting pretty fired up. They're getting pretty emotional about this. We're good people. We're good people who are trying to figure out a way to kill you, but we're good people. It's not us. Jesus says to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I have come here from God. I've not come on my own, but God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? You can hear the frustration in Jesus' voice. Why aren't you getting it? Why don't you see? Then he says, because you're unable to hear what I say, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There's a number of ways that we can describe God's kingdom. There's a number of ways we can describe the state of the world. There's a number of ways we can understand this cosmic battle between good and evil. 
And in this teaching moment, Jesus chooses to use spiritual heritage as a paradigm for understanding what is going on here. He says, which father's business are you being about? Which craftsman are you emulating? Which is the training program that you've dedicated yourself to? Whose desires are you carrying out? If you're thinking about murdering someone, he says, you're not, you are not a child of Abraham. That is not the legacy you're living. If you're thinking about murdering someone, that is pure evil. From the father of lies. The one who, when he lies, is speaking his native language. This is a telling moment because the people of God, the descendants of Abraham, are showing that they are actually children of the devil. This is a really hard truth. I have no doubt that the people are feeling incredibly misunderstood by Jesus. I have no doubt that they're maybe feeling a little bit judged. And, they, and, they, and they'd love to point out all the things that they're doing right. And you would see that. People would come to Jesus, uh, good religious Jews in the day, who feel that they're doing everything right. And yet he would confront them in that. He would say to them, oh, you, you think you're doing so well because you haven't murdered anyone. I'm telling you, if you just hate someone, that's akin to murder. You're in league with the devil when you're hating someone. He says, you think you're doing really well. You haven't committed adultery. He says, if you just look at somebody with lust in your eye, you're about the other father's business. It's sin. You're... And you're ruled over by sin. He says, you're doing a great job. You've tithed on all the spices. And you're traveling across the world to make converts. He says, but you have forgotten justice and mercy and faithfulness. He reminds people who are so sure that they love God. No, I love God. I am so committed to Him. He says, you can't claim to love a God you've never seen when you will not love the, the humanity that he's made in his image. Jesus' closing comments for this section in verse 45, he says, yet because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. He says, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling you the truth, why won't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God, hears what God says. And the reason you are not hearing is that you do not belong to God. I think it's interesting. He closes tying together the idea of whose family you belong to with the idea of who is it that you're willing to listen to. And we see moments like this where Jesus is maybe coming across a little bit uh, more harsh with the crowd or he's really laying it out there in black and white. Like, hey, here's the deal. You guys are in trouble. Um, but let's not forget that the reason he is doing all of this is to invite people into repentance. This isn't a it's too late for you moment. This is a make some changes before it's too late kind of moment. How do we know which family we belong to? Well, who are we listening to? Are we hearing what God is saying to us? Are we listening to what? the other voices say or what the other father says. You can read in here Jesus' frustration with the crowd, like, why don't you believe me? Why are you trying to kill me? 
He's pleading with them, don't go down this road. Stop listening to the devil. You know, when someone takes a snapshot of your life that is less than flattering, how do you respond to that? Here Jesus has taken a snapshot for the crowd of their culture, of their people, of who they are that is less than flattering. The question is, how are they going to respond to that? How do you respond to it? How do you respond to something when someone uh, or a situation or something that's happening in your life confronts you with those versions of yourself that are far less than what they're meant to be if God would truly have his way? How do you respond? You know, I'm, I'm pretty grateful. When it, when it initially happened, I, I talked it over, over with the other coach, and we said some uh, mean things about our boss together, and we talked about how wrong he was. Uh, but in the quiet moments by myself over the last few years, as I've reflected on the situation, I've really become pretty grateful for some harsh feedback in my life, for someone pointing out a moment that I was far less than what I was meant to be. Them pointing out the snapshot, the less flattering portrait of my life, and, and, and my ability to at least at some point agree with it and say, okay, they're right, has enabled me to become a better version of myself. I, I can tell you, the last time I screamed at a kid during a game in frustration was that time five years ago. <laughs> like, So thank you, Jesus, for people in my life who are willing to point out the stories that I refuse to tell myself. I'm definitely a player's coach. You might not get better playing basketball for me, but you will definitely feel better about yourself. I'm wholeheartedly committed to that part of it. Um, I needed confrontation that day. We need people in our lives who are willing to say these kinds of things. We need teachers like Jesus who will say to us, we've got to wake up. We cannot live as children of the devil. That's not how we were meant to live. We weren't created to live that way. We've got to break out of those cycles. Super important to have people in your life who can speak into your life. And it's super important that the family of God is a place where these kinds of conversations are happening. Where people are able to speak the truth in love with one another. Not beating each other over the head with our faults, but coming to someone and saying, I see something that's concerning. And inviting you into a conversation with it. And then probably being patient with you when you're, you know, you're, you're uh, uh, defensive, the self-denial, maybe grading them over the coals. I mean, you're wrong. You know what I see in you, you know. Because we do that. We'll do that. That's part, of, that's part of the natural process. But if we can hang together through all of that, I really believe that God can use us as instruments of transformation in each other's lives. And, and I really believe that's his purpose for the church.